Could you turn with me please tonight to 1 Samuel 17. As you know, on Sunday morning we had David in a day of famine and we looked at 2 Samuel 21. And then on Sunday evening we had David in a day of loneliness, Psalm 142. And tonight we have David in a day of battle, 1 Samuel 17. And we're going to break into the narrative at verse 17. 1 Samuel 17, verse 17. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, and ran into the army, and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth his Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab his eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Ending a reading there at verse number 29. Let's pray together. Father, as we come tonight to your word, not just to be informed, but to be inspired. And Father, even though this narrative is well known to us, we pray that you might indeed bring it afresh to our memory. And we use the words of the old Puritan who said, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. Bless your word to our heart, for Christ's sake. Amen. The war in Ukraine has now entered its second year. 
Although the hostilities between the Ukraine and Russia go back to February 2014, almost nine years now, but in a fresh way it started last year. The statistics are not pleasant reading. The last I checked, uh, which was earlier today, the deaths of both sides are now put at 57,512. Uh, almost 274,000 injured and 17 million people displaced. Today, the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights is monitoring 110 armed conflicts around the world. In Ukraine, in Ethiopia, in Afghanistan, Yemen, Myanmar, and so the list goes on. My first concept of war came from a Bible study book, uh, a Bible story book, I should say, that my mother read to me as a child. I still remember it. The pictures in it were modern, even though the story, of course, was biblical. And my favorite story in this big, thick book was the one that we have read tonight, David and Goliath. It started at page number 31, and I knew whenever the book fell open, that's where it would fall, because that was my favorite. David was portrayed in this colorful storybook as a schoolboy with the sling sticking out of his back pocket. And the two armies, the Philistines and the children of Israel, in the picture looked more like uh, street gangs uh, taunting each other. And Goliath was massive, and he was dressed as some sort of superhero, Captain America kind of figure. This was my story. I loved it. This was David's first battle. And we all remember it, of course, from our Sunday school days. Goliath stood about ten foot tall. Verse 4 says he was six cubits and a span, which is about three meters, which is just under ten foot. His armor was ten stone in weight, 500 shekels. He had a massive sword, and he shouts his defiance across the valley of of Elah. Send me your fighter. Send me your hero. Send me your champion. It was a brilliant idea. I don't know if Goliath thought of it or not, but somebody came up with a genius idea. You see, up to this point, the two armies stood on each side of a valley, and whenever the command was given, the both armies ran into the valley, and It cost thousands of lives. And and families on each side would be devastated as the news came back of the loved ones that were cut down in the battle. But somebody thought of the idea, we'll give our champion, you give your champion, they will represent us, and only one person will die. Brilliant idea. And it would save an awful lot of death and tragedy. The army of Israel is frightened and embarrassed and nobody wants to fight the giant 
of Gath. And as I thought of the meeting tonight, you know, I could use that, I could pause there and see exactly the same kind of scenario in 2023. Satan's giants intimidate us and frighten us into cardus. And I could use the text as a topical springboard to highlight some of Satan's giants who march across our land. Maybe you've met them this week. There's the giant of depression. What a giant that is. Boy, it can destroy you. And you see people who seem to be so clear and so positive and so articulate and before you know it, they're carrying depression. I remember visiting a, a home in Balamina. The husband rang me about seven o'clock in the morning. You never like it's never good news when somebody rings you at seven o'clock in the morning. Somehow good news can always wait to a more reasonable hour. Huh? And he says, Pastor, I can't get out of the house. My wife won't let me go. And I need to get to my work. And I got my clothes on, went round to the home. He let me in. He left me, went into the car. Went into the house. And there was this dear woman, a prayer warrior. But she was carved in a corner of the kitchen. Rolled up in a wee ball. She had already put her fist through one of the kitchen cupboards. If you'd seen this wee lady, you wouldn't have thought that was possible. But in sheer frustration, she put her fist through one of the kitchen cupboards. Depression. I remember sitting down beside her in the kitchen floor, quoting verses to her, not getting anywhere. And I started to run out of verses to quote. And in desperation, I started to sing to her. Now, I would need to be desperate to do that, but I started to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. And after we while, she started to sing it with me. And that wee lady doesn't remember me coming to the house that day. She doesn't remember me putting my arm around her in the kitchen floor, but she does remember somebody singing, Jesus loves me. Maybe that's an impact of my singing, that she couldn't get it out of her head. Maybe that was it. Depression. It's a terrible thing. What about the giant of doubt? I know nobody from St. But, but many people do and they're confident and they believe of course they believe but, but Satan comes as a giant and all of a sudden they, the foundations are shaken what about the giant of bereavement the giant of pain the giant of pornography the giant of loneliness the giant of discouragement the giant of stress the giant of unemployment the giant of temptation there's hundreds of them and we could spend time thinking of the giants that are on the march. But I'm leaving all those giants for another day to ask a question. How does David cope in a day of battle? How can we know victory in this present evil age? 
I'm nearly scared to bring this message because this is Sunday school material. You understand that. But let's see if we can just glean something together. The first thing I want you to notice is the strange inaction. Look at verse 28 that we read. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And of course, there was no battle. (laughs) There was a strange inaction. Whenever David turned up to the combat zone of Elah and he heard the taunting of the giant, he was horrified that none of the soldiers of Israel would respond to the challenge. Why why is there not a queue of men ready to take on this? Why the lack of courage? And Eliab, David's oldest brother, accuses David of just coming down to see the battle. But what was disturbing David is that there's no battle to see at all. There's a strange inaction. Nobody is fighting. Yes, the armies are equipped and ready. Yes, they are positioned in the arena of war in the valley of Elah. Yes, there is an enemy accamped against God's people. But in reality, there's no fight. There's no battle. There's no wounds. It's a strange inaction. And let me pause there for a moment. Because again, I I see a parallel in 2023. You see, we can sing about the battle as we did in our opening hymn. And we can read about the battle and there's books written for, on spiritual warfare and, and we know the weapons and the army, or the armor for the battle that we find in Ephesians 6, the, uh, the loins girt about with truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. We, we know it. And yet across our province tonight, there's a lack of fight. There's a lack of confrontation with the enemy. Very quickly we compromise. Very quickly we just fall into what is expected for a church today that will be acceptable to the community. We polish our shields. We sharpen our swords. In fact, we sharpen our swords so sharp that we can cut a Christian in two. But it's all talk and no battle. Hmm? The enemy is on the march. He's in our schools today. Among our teenagers today. He's in our marriages today. He's in our society and in our fellowships. And many, when I speak to them about these things, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's a sign of the times. And I think I said on Sunday about being living in a Laodicean lukewarm age is no excuse for being a Laodicean church. And as I go across the province, I tell you, we've got lax, we've got casual to evangelism. There's no passion today. Casual about holiness of life. We've got casual about daily devotions. We've got casual about the discipline of prayer. 
strange inaction. I maybe have told this illustration before in St. Field it comes to mind. Let me take you down to Belfast Harbour. And there on one side is the latest cruise ship, 12 stories high, five restaurants, six swimming pools, you know the kind of thing. And the people are coming and the smile on their face and their luggage and, and they're looking forward to 10 days or two weeks of opulence and extravagance and luxury and, and they're looking forward to the break. And just across the harbour, on the other side, there's a Royal Navy Type 45 frigate destroyer. And young people are arriving with their kit bag over their shoulder. And the mums are with tears in their eyes because these young people are going out to some of the most difficult situations across the world. What a contrast. The cruise ship, the battleship. Now listen, as a pastor, I've discovered that the biggest problem in the church today is that at salvation, most Christians thought they were signing up for the cruise ship. When in reality, they were signing up for the battleship. And there are commanders not happy if we try to live a cruise life experience on a battleship. Could I say something else? That Satan is not in the least bit worried about Christians on the cruise ship. They're no threat to him. None whatsoever. I'll tell you, he is very concerned and very worried about the Christians on the battleship. And the moment you ask the Lord, dear friend, I want you to understand, you are not getting on the cruise ship. You are getting on a battleship. There's a war on. Our, our time of cruising will come. It's called heaven. <laughs> no more tears. No more battle. No more worries. No more wounds. Oh, the Lamb shall be all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Our cruise time is coming. But until that day, we're on the battleship. Imagine the two ships come back in after a fortnight. And the people got off the cruise ship. There's no ban. There's no welcome. They're home. Ah, but over at the battleship, they're coming out with arms and sling, and they're hobbling the crutches. And there's a band play. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Dear friend, if you want to sit and criticize the preacher or criticize the oversight and criticize the church and crit- boy, we're experts at it. Listen, it's not the time for petty critics. There's a war on. War on. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity or sin in the grave. Weep o'er the erring ones. Lift up the full. Tell them of Jesus. The mighty to save. The battle is real.
Satan's Goliaths are on the march. And yes, because of the Easter message and the empty tomb, absolutely true, but we still fight against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it just could be in St. Field tonight that you've been wounded in the battle. I remember Marjorie Foy many years ago. She was a missionary. She wrote a book called Honorably Wounded. If you can get your hands on it, get it and read it. She says, we're the only army in the world that shoots our wounded. (laughs) Honorably wounded. Maybe you've been wounded in the battle. Satan's fiery darts have injured you. I pray that you'll know the comfort and healing touch of the great physician. So strange in action. That's the first point. Secondly, I want you to see the severe stipulation. Look at verse 38 and verse 39. And Saul armed David with his armor and put on a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword about his armor and he is said to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David Put them off him. Nobody wanted to fight. And David, this young fellow who was not old enough to be in the official army, uh, who arrived to bring supplies, but this young lad had proved God by defeating a lion and defeating a bear. You read about that in verse 34 and verse 35 and 36. And, and so he is now ready to Goliath. Now let me pause there. For It's interesting. He proved God privately before ever he was asked to prove God publicly. He proved God when nobody else was about. And a lion came one day and attacked the sheep. And a bear came and attacked the sheep. And he went out and he faced them. And he proved the power of God. When no one else was about. And now he's ready to go into the public arena. Could I say that's always the order? I meet young fellas today and they love to be on a platform. They love the thought of being a pastor. Love the thought of being a preacher. The Lord bless them. But if you've never proved God in the private place, where no one else is about, you haven't got the credentials to go into the public arena. David proved God privately before he was called on to prove him publicly. But notice the severe stipulation. Saul insists that if David fights, he will wear his Armor, verse 38, and Saul armed David with his armor and put on the helmet of brass upon his head, and so on. Isn't that interesting? Saul should have been out to fight. He was head and shoulders above all the fighting men of Israel. It should have been his call. Men, stand back. I'm your king. I'll do this for you. (laughs) But he he didn't want to do it. This young lad, David, says, I'll go. But David says, well, if you're going to go, I want you to use my armor. Now, I get, I get phone calls of people telling me how they don't want to fight, but telling me how I should fight. 
They, they want me to fight. They don't want to fight, but they want me to use their armor. I usually say to them, I prefer my way of doing it than your way of not doing it. Oh, the severe stipulation. Saul's armor was for Saul. He should be wearing it. He should be facing Goliath. He should have led by example. If David had worn it, Saul could have said, well, of course he beat God. Of course he won. He was wearing my armor, you know. <laughs> or maybe. Or maybe. Saul thought if David put Saul's armor on, as he walked into the battle, the army would say, well, there's Saul. They're so going to fight for us. That's definitely Saul's arm, especially made for him. You could tell it a mile away. The Saul's the way. Look, there's his helmet. And he wanted to give the impression he was doing it when it wasn't him at all. What's the point? I just say this in passing. If you're not prepared to fight, be very slow to criticize someone who is prepared to fight. They might not do it the way you would. They might wear your armor. But just pray that God will give them great success in the battle for God. Strange in action. Fight but no fight. Battle but no battle. <laughs> we're, good, we're good at that. Strange in action. We know it all up here. And then the severe stipulation. If you're going to fight, you must wear my armor. I want, you, I want to take a wee bit of the credit. I, I want to take a wee bit of the glory. So you're going to wear my armor. Maybe they'll even think it's me. Notice thirdly, not only the strange inaction and the severe stipulation, but the sweeping omission. Many commentators miss this. I didn't find it in any of the commentaries. But it's very simple. Nobody mentions the name of Jehovah before David arrives. A sweeping omission. In fact, when we read the narrative, Eliab never mentioned God's name. He's worried about the wee business back home and who did you leave the sheep with and are they wandering away. He's more worried about business. never mentions the name of Jehovah he's engrossed with the size and the might of the enemy he says in verse 33 he's been a a man of war from his youth and he's got caught up with the size and the might and the power of the enemy I say it's a tragic thing when God's people in their hour of need lose sight of their heavenly commander And it's possible that tonight in St. Field, maybe you have lost sight of Jesus. We feel he's distant and aloof. We believe in the theory, but we don't see Jesus really making a difference in our lives from day to day. His word becomes bland. And we do the Bible reading notes and it all just seems to fade from our memory. Prayer seems pointless. The church's routine. Boy, it's easy to lose sight of Jesus. 
was a Johnson Oakman Jr. writing away back in the late 1800s. O, O pilgrim bound for the heavenly land, never lose sight of Jesus. He'll lead you gently with loving hand. Never lose sight of Jesus. Whenever you're tempted to Never lose sight of Jesus. Press onward, upward, the narrow way. Never lose sight of Jesus. When death is knocking outside the door, never lose sight of Jesus. He'll safely land you in Canaan's shore. Never lose sight of Jesus. And then the chorus, never lose sight of Jesus. Never lose sight of Jesus. Day and night, he will lead you right. Never lose sight of Jesus. Have you got your eyes on him tonight? The one who loved us. The one who died for us. The one who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The, the one who knows our pain even before. The one who's there. I, I remember going to preach in Scotland. The man picked me up, brought me to the home me to the room, locked the room, and he says, now I'll leave you for a wee while just to yourself and we'll have a cup of tea. So I thought, okay, I'll get my suits out and put them in the wardrobe. When I opened the wardrobe, I couldn't have got a shirt and never mind a suit. It was crammed full of stuff. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put something in the drawers and open the drawer, and they must have been using bounce or something because it sprung up and I couldn't get it closed again. I wonder, do I do that with the Holy Spirit? You know, at, at salvation, I invite him into my heart. Lord, I'm yours. Lord, I'm trusting you. Lord, come into my heart. And he comes. Praise God, he comes. But he gets into the hall, and there's no room for him to move anywhere else. Holy Spirit, don't be going in there. That's my library. That's where I do my thing. Don't, don't be going, and don't be going up into the roof space. And don't be going under the basement. And don't be going into my games room. And don't be watching what I watch in the television. Don't be going into my computer room. Please don't. But you're very welcome in the hall. <laughs> very welcome. The filling of the Spirit is much abused nowadays. But the act the, of the filling of the Spirit, you invite Him into your heart and you open every cupboard, every drawer, every door and say, fill this place. Fill the place. That's, that's it. It's in my life. Every time I open another door or open another drawer, the Lord seems to just point his finger in another area. Say, Lawrence, I want that one open. No, Lord, not that one. Yes, that one. And I get no peace until I open that door. And I've no sooner opened it. And he says, well, open that door. And through my life, it's constantly saying, Lord, fill that, fill that. Come in here. In the valley of pain and suffering, fix your gaze in Jesus. In the valley of apathy and lethargy, with shrug of the shoulders kind of attitude, never lose sight of Jesus. In the valley of sin and backsliding, never lose sight of Jesus. 
It's all about him. We have had Easter there. We focus on those last days of our Lord's public ministry. But it's not about the Easter eggs. It's not about chickens. It's not about holidays. It's not about chocolate. It's all about him. It's all about him. The one who loved us and died for us. In Daniel 17, David walks to the brook and gathers five smooth stones. Why? Hmm? The theologians have a field day with this. Boy, they do. Some will say, well, now five is the number of grace in numerology in the Bible, the study of numbers. And then the number five is the number of grace. And David is saying victory comes through grace. I don't think that entered David's head. I don't, I don't really. I'm not sure he was at this stage a theologian. Others would say that five was the number of attempts that David thought that would take the floor the Goliath. Uh, he had a lack of faith and he thought it would take five attempts to get his aim right. Others say that there's five books of Moses and so David was saying that my victory is on the authority of God's word. Others point to Second Samuel 21 that says that Goliath had four brothers. So David was ready for all of them. And one particular theologian I read uh, gave me the names of the five stones. He says, the five stones were called love, grace, mercy, trust, and victory. God bless him. Hmm? For me, all I know is that God for hundreds, yea, thousands of years had those stones in the brook smoothing them so at the right time, at the right moment, they'd be ready for David. For me, it speaks of the sovereignty of God. God knew when they would be needed, how smooth they needed to be. And they were just there for David when he needed them. For the sovereign will and purposes of God. So the strange inaction, no battle. The severe stipulation, you have to wear somebody else's armor. The sweeping omission, they lost sight of Jehovah. Fourthly, the stirring confrontation from verse 40 to 49. David, with a simple yet profound trust in God, walked into the battle arena. And the giant Goliath laughs at him and mocks him. And God directs the stone. Goliath falls. David goes over and draws his big sword and cuts his head off. A sudden, glorious victory. And the men of Israel who were frightened are frightened no more. The armies of Israel in an instant went from apathy one young man turned the tide. One shepherd boy in the hands of God swept in days of revival. Boy, there's a sermon on that, isn't there? Dare we calculate what God could do with St. Field Baptist, with the saints of Ulster? If we marched into the battle arena 
in his might and not our own. Dare we calculate what God could do with the United Kingdom to turn the tide of politics, to turn the apathy to the things of God, gender confusion, marriage redefinition, and all the issues that young pastors are having to deal with today. Dear saint of God, stand aside if you don't want to fight. I, I understand fighting's difficult. If you don't want to fight, stand aside. There's a war on. Souls are dying in sin. Time is fast disappearing. It's time to rescue the perishing. The strange inaction, no battle. The severe stipulation, wear somebody else's armor. The sweeping omission, the lost sight of Jehovah. Stirring confrontation, David sweeps in a mighty glorious victory. One final point. Silly devotion. Silly devotion. Look at chapter 18 and verse number 7. And the woman answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. They attributed the victory to David. But in reality, it was God from start to finish. It was God who prepared the heart of David while he shepherded in the Judean hillside. It was God who prompted the heart of Jesse to send David to Eli with, with, Eli to, with supplies for his brothers. It was God who provoked the heart of Saul to let David go to face the giant. It was God that primed the sling of David to direct the stone and target. It was God from start to finish. But the crowd could not see past the servant. And that misdirected praise almost cost David his life because of Saul's jealousy. Can I say to you, as someone who spends maybe too much time at the front, all the glory belongs to God. All of it. No matter who's in the pulpit, they're just a sinner saved by grace. And never get an eye on a man because the best of men will let you down. The best of men will turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sunday school material. I know that. I'm nearly embarrassed. But let's get involved in the fight. Be done with the strange inaction. Talk but no talk. Be careful with the severe stipulation fighting somebody else's armor. Be aware of the sweeping omission God was forgotten about. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be thankful for the stirring confrontation. One young man can bring revival and God's strength. And be conscious of the silly devotion. God must get all the glory. Next week, God willing, David in a day of harvest. May God bless his word.